0: Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, as a tribunal in London hears of human rights atrocities against the Uyghur community in China, how will museums, galleries and other cultural institutions working with government-supported organisations in China respond? I talked to the Art Newspaper's editor-at-large, Christina Ruiz, who's heard many hours of disturbing evidence at the tribunal, and to Sir Geoffrey Nice, the tribunal's chair. Also this week, I talked to Martin Bailey about his latest book on Van Gogh, looking at his final months, his death and his legacy. And in this episode's Work of the Week, I talked to Kenneth Tyler, the master printmaker who's collaborated on some of the great prints of the post-war era, about his work on a group of six woodcuts by Helen Frankenthaler, The Tales of Genji. Before all that, our sister podcast, A Brush With, is back with a new series of four episodes. In A Brush With, I talk to leading artists in-depth about the influences and cultural experiences that have helped define their life and work. The first of the weekly episodes, A Brush With Philippe Perreno, is out now, and in next week's episode, I talk to Tacita Dean. So do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear those and to explore the archive. Now more than 25 conversations with artists from Ragnar Kjartansson to Judy Meratu, Rachel Whiteread and Rashid Johnson. Now, in June and again this month, a tribunal in London has heard from numerous witnesses about alleged atrocities committed against Uyghurs and other Muslim groups in the Xinjiang region of China. The tribunal heard from Uyghur survivors of detention camps and numerous experts about the scale of the violence against Uyghurs, which has coincided with the draconian suppression of religious practice in the region and the destruction, defacement or closure of mosques, shrines, Muslim cemeteries and other sacred spaces, according to experts. Meanwhile, major British and European museums such as the Tate and the Victoria and Albert Museum or V&A in London and the Centre Pompidou in Paris are collaborating with state-owned firms in China to develop projects in the country and share their art collections and expertise. The Uyghur Tribunal is an independent panel set up in London to investigate the People's Republic of China, or PRC's, alleged human rights abuses and possible crimes against humanity in the Xinjiang detention camps. It consists of nine members and is chaired by the British barrister Sir Geoffrey Nice, who led the United Nations prosecution of the former Serbian President Slobodan Milosevic at The Hague. The tribunal was convened at the request of the World Uyghur Congress, a group of Uyghurs living in exile, and it will issue a report in December. Christina Ruiz, our editor-at-large, watched all the sessions of the tribunal and attended some of them in person. I spoke to her about the evidence she heard and about how it affects the worlds of art and heritage. Christina, you've been attending the Uyghur tribunal in London. Can you say something about your experiences there?
1: I sat through all eight days of hearings and listened to the testimony of around 70 witnesses, Uh, Of these, around 15 were so-called fact witnesses who have a direct experience of the detention camps in Xinjiang. Uh, And the rest were uh, expert witnesses, so people who have some expertise in aspects of Chinese policy or human rights activists or open source specialists, etc., And the picture that emerged from the hearings is of a totalitarian state committing mass atrocities against its own citizens, enabled by the most advanced surveillance tools in the world. Uh, High-tech totalitarianism is how one expert described China under President Xi. So this is really, it's a new kind of mass atrocity that has not been documented before with the use of these technologies. Uh, The tribunal heard that Uyghurs, Kazakhs, and other Turkic Muslim groups in Xinjiang are being rounded up and imprisoned as part of a draconian suppression of religious practice in the region and coercive secularization. Uh, In fact, uh, several camp survivors told the tribunal that inside the camps, all forms of religion are referred to as extremism. The Uyghur's children are being stolen by the state, in effect. Uh, We heard estimates that 500,000 children under the age of five are now being raised by the state in uh, what are euphemistically described as kindness centres. And the state has also had to build a network of nursing homes for the parents of the detainees whose children can no longer look after them. So um, the dependence of these prisoners both younger and older, are basically now in the care of the state.
0: What crime does the state say they have committed?
1: Mostly they are accused of either of separatism. I mean, the, the suppression of the Uyghurs has taken place as part of ostensibly a security operation. They are accused of terrorism. The range of charges is against them is is incredibly extensive. I mean, one expert said that, in effect, you could be imprisoned in Xinjiang simply for having a beard, because, you know, this is a sort of marker of Muslim cultural expression. Or if you have WhatsApp on your phone, or if you have the wrong music. I mean, it could really be anything. But the thing to remember is that these these prisoners have not had any kind of due process. So, I mean, often there are no charges. They're simply imprisoned.
0: There may be people listening to this who are thinking it's the week in art it's an art podcast why are ben and christina talking about this tell me why it matters in terms of the art world
1: well, there are two reasons. The first is that the treatment of the Uyghurs and other Muslim groups uh, coincides with a crackdown on religious practice and the destruction of mosques, graveyards, and other sacred spaces in Xinjiang. And um, the scale of the destruction of Muslim sites is is definitely something that we as an art publication, would cover. There have been estimates by the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, for example, that since 2017, 56% of the region's mosques and 58% of its important Islamic sites have been either destroyed or damaged. And there was a lot of evidence of that nature at the tribunal, including from a specialist at Newcastle University who personally documented this destruction during two trips to the region.
0: But there's also an aspect of British cultural institutions and cultural institutions across the world, in fact, working directly with state-supported museums in China. And you think that's a, a big issue, right?
1: Yes, that is reason number two, why I believe we should be covering these hearings. Many of our leading museums have entered into partnerships with uh, the Chinese state. The Pompidou has opened a branch in Shanghai and the VNA helped develop a new cultural center in Shenzhen, which opened in two thousand and seventeen. So that's the sort of top tier of museum involvement in China. But then a lot of, you know, other museums also have collaborations in China, including the British Museum, the V&A, the National Gallery, and the Metropolitan Museum in New York have licensing deals with a company called Alfilo Brands in Shanghai. Now, Alfilo Brands is a subsidiary of the Alibaba Group, And we heard testimony at the tribunal uh, from Connor Healy of IPVM, which is a surveillance industry publication. Uh, He talked about how all big Chinese tech companies have developed Uyghur facial recognition technology following a directive issued by the Ministry of Public Security. And this sort of tech is used for all sorts of applications, including smart policing in Xinjiang, which basically enables policemen to receive real-time warnings and alerts if Uyghurs are in places where they are not allowed to be, for example, in mosque. If you are a Uyghur living in this area, you are under constant surveillance, and the police know where you are at all times. Now, Huawei patented its Uyghur detection technology in July 2018, and Alibaba included its own Uyghur detection tool in its Cloud Shield online content moderation solution, which apparently enables websites to detect and automatically remove pictures of videos of Uyghurs or posted by Uyghurs. So this company is the company that many of our museums are partnering with. And I think that raises serious questions for us, the public, who pay for these museums through our taxes and who support them uh, by going to their shows, buying their, you know, retail offerings and uh, eating their food.
0: Now, you've obviously asked questions of those museums. What are they saying to you when you bring up this issue? You, You mentioned you've been to the tribunal, you present them with the evidence that you've heard at the tribunal. What are their responses?
1: Well, the first time I asked them was just over a year ago, which is when we really started covering this issue. And uh, the Tate, the V&A and the Pompidou all defended their partnerships in China, as you would expect. And mostly they say things like sharing our collections and expertise like this can help to foster tolerance and curiosity. Or generates great understanding between global cultures and community you know all that sort of thing. the VNA however, did say something which I thought was quite interesting. They said the VNA receives approximately forty percent of its income from the UK government. The rest of our operating budget must be drawn from sponsorship donations, membership, and commercial activities. in the current financial environment, we recognized an increased need for financial resilience. Innovations like our partnership with design society in China play an increasingly important part in ensuring the VNA is financially sustainable, contributed to the ongoing preservation of national collections, keeping the VNA free to visitors, etc et etc. Cetera, et cetera. Now to me, that sounds an awful lot like they're saying that our you know ability to enjoy exhibitions is more important than speaking out against the atrocities that are happening. In China which I find an incredible thing to say.
0: So I guess that some people might be listening to this and thinking well there are human rights atrocities being committed by numerous countries with which these cultural institutions are working so why should we single out China why should we single out one state for attention?
1: Well, I think the answer to that is that the scale of the atrocities in China are unlike anything else that is happening right now, anywhere. Uh, And it is our moral imperative to take a stand. And of course, you know, we've seen so much scrutiny of museum and their sources of funding in in the last few years. Uh, They've come under huge pressure to stop taking money from oil and gas companies like BP and from donors like the Sacklers who are considered to, you know, have made that money immorally through pushing drugs that are addictive uh, in misleading ways, which they deny, obviously. And I think that this is part of that public scrutiny. I think that if most people realize that our museums are rushing to make money in China, um, which is essentially what they're doing. I mean, these licensing deals are hugely profitable. There was one report in The Independent where the journalist discovered under a Freedom of Information request that the British Museum is operating 34 licensing deals with Chinese companies. And it also has a collaboration agreement uh, with the Hong Kong government, which again, I would say, is highly questionable at the current time. They incidentally say that these sorts of exchanges are an essential part of the BM's international role.
0: So the issue at stake here is to what extent do you think this tribunal these terrible things that you've heard at this tribunal are going to make any difference to museums activities and what do you think needs to happen for them to take note is it government is it the the people that visit the museums what needs to happen for museums to change course do you think
1: I think it's actually up to the public to put pressure on museums because museums although they occupy a particular place in our society, and they like to claim that they are ethical leaders, the truth is that they really are not. As Adrian Ellis of the cultural advisory firm AEA Consulting has said, when it comes to ethics, museums never lead. They simply follow public opinion. So I think it's up to us to put pressure on our museums. And I think it's important that we have an open and honest conversation about these issues, which is something the museums are generally unwilling to do. I requested interviews with the directors of all these museums. And to take just one example, Tristram Hunt, who is the director of the V&A, great friend of the art newspaper, who is never far from our pages, somehow mysteriously unavailable when I want to talk about China in a location, apparently, with no email or telephone. And the same goes for the director of Tate. And I think that's wrong. I think they're accountable to us, the public, and I think that they should talk about this. If they're going to defend these partnerships, then they should do that.
0: Do you think, I mean, at the moment, there are tense relationships between cultural institutions and politicians because there are some directives that have come out from politicians about how certain cultural institutions should behave with relating particularly relating to history etc etc do you think there's any sense in which if the british government were to start acting on the tribunal's findings and as we know we're not going to know until december what those findings are but could government put pressure if it decides to act on museums as well as acting in terms of its relationship to the Chinese state?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think museums very much follow the lead of governments, you know, when it comes to their own foreign relations. So yes, and to be fair, uh, you know, British parliamentarians uh, voted to call what is occurring now in China genocide. Of course, parliament and government are not the same thing. But nevertheless, there is a sizable body of opinion out there now that is willing to call this genocide. I expect the tribunal will make the same finding because uh, the key issue is culpability. You know, you have to be able to prove intent. And there was a lot of evidence presented at the tribunal which uh, suggests that these policies were devised in Beijing.
0: But above all, you think we need to speak out?
1: Absolutely. That is my personal view. Of course, you know, others disagree with me. um, But I would just point out that there was some evidence provided to the tribunal that some Uyghur prisoners were released after their families contacted human rights organizations who then raised their cases internationally. So talking about these people who are in prison at the moment might help. And finally, um, I just thought I'd mention one thing, which is that... During the course of the tribunal, several comparisons of China's treatment of the Uyghurs to the persecution of the Jewish people under the Third Reich were made. And in fact, leading Jewish groups in this country used the opportunity of Holocaust Remembrance Day on 27th of January to speak out about what is happening to the Uyghurs. And Marie van der Zyl, president of the board of deputies of British Jews, wrote to Boris Johnson, our prime minister, and said, as a community, we are always extremely hesitant to consider comparisons with the Holocaust. However, there are similarities between what is reported to be happening in China and what happened in Nazi Germany in the 1930s and 40s violations of the Uyghurs' human rights are shaping up to be the most serious outrage of all time.
0: Well, that's a very sobering message. Christina, thank you very much for coming on to tell us about this. Thank you, Ben. You can read Christina's reporting on the Tribunal at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can get from the App Store or the Android app, which you can find on Google Play. Now, as I mentioned, Sir Geoffrey Nice is the chair of the Tribunal and I spoke to him about its purpose and what effect the evidence it's heard and the report that it will issue might have on governments, cultural institutions and the wider public. Sir Geoffrey, could you tell us about the Tribunal? What is it?
2: The People's Tribunal and People's Tribunals, which have existed off and on in different places around the world, probably since the 1960s, when Lord Russell and fellow philosopher, Frenchman, Jean-Paul Sartre, started a tribunal into whether America had committed certain crimes in the Vietnam War. And they started for the same reason as all the other tribunals operate, because there's a question that needs to be asked and answered. And neither governments nor international bodies will have the courage, inclination or desire to do it. And yet the information needs to be
0: there. So in other words, you don't have any ability to act in terms of sanctions of any kind, for instance, but you make available information to those who can act.
2: Absolutely. We neither have nor want power because... Our interest is not in the particular area. For example, in this case, I'm not particularly concerned about the Ogres more than I'm concerned about our other alleged victim groups, the Rohingya or the Nigerian Christians. It's just happens they made a request that we should do this. So I and all my colleagues, our interest is in the fact that people aren't being given an answer to a question, and they need an answer to a question in order to perform their own. private and if they operate in a broader context broader public duty
0: but in this context as we're an art podcast and the people that listening to this are people who visit cultural institutions who have relationships with other cultural institutions in china that are state related they are state funded or you know so they have connections to the Chinese state so effectively what you're saying is the information provided by the tribunal could be used by people who visit these museums to put pressure on the people that run them to make decisions in relation to that information.
2: Yes I I think not only once the information is in if it's significant in whatever we determine in the judgment then it should be used because, after all, if you're performing a, a function which involves consideration of public affairs, whether you, that's a school that wishes to have a, an outpost in another country or a university that does the same thing, or either of those has a great influx of money from another country associated with pupils from another country who may be under that country's influence, and so on, so forth. yes, one would imagine that all those institutions and the people who run them would would want to consider these matters that are questioned once they become resolved as facts.
0: In 2018, you were the chair of another tribunal which looked at the harvesting of organs Mm. of people in China. Mm. That report came down with some conclusions that were incredibly powerful, incredibly disturbing, and you would have thought compelled people to act. But did they?
2: It's hard to know, isn't it? Whether it had any effect in the country concerned in softening the behaviour or mediating or reducing the trade in organs, something I can't know. Whether it's had an effect on parliamentarians and governments around the world, it's perhaps a little easier to make conjecture about. And the answer is it probably has had effect. That particular tribunal, the, the landscape from 2000 or 2001, when the first allegations of this were raised around the world in parliaments with sometimes the odd witness appearing before a committee, then in books by three different authors of considerable authority, and then raised again in parliaments with increasing firmness. The answer from parliaments was, can't hear you. Because at that time, China was a very important and popular trading partner. And so nobody wanted to know about these things. And to take our own government, one or two people in both houses of parliament were regularly asking the government, what are you doing about this? It's absolutely disgraceful and so on and so forth. And the government would always come back, and, well, we don't think there's quite enough evidence, or we don't think on our analysis the case is proved. Once we delivered our judgment, which is fully public, all the material was fully articulated, all the evidence available. So the judgment was 160 pages, and then there's a few more hundred pages in the book, and then there's the whole website of material, um, and the judgment was set out in very clear the way the decisions were made, then government was in this much of a bind. First of all, they had to read the document, which 160 pages might have taken a couple of hours, but it's not an excessive demand. And Of course, it would be read by underlings, not by ministers in the first instance. And then they'd have to decide whether they could or should challenge its factual basis or analytical approach or legal factual conclusions, and they never have them. So that here's a decision, a fact resulting from a decision, advanced in a clear way, and government doesn't know what to do, but it can't now deny it. And you will find thus far, although depending on what present political forces there might be, who knows whether this will change, but thus far, no one has challenged that report. Equally, no government has gone out of its way to say we're gonna do this much different with the PRC. But there are more and more governments, Australia, for example, more and more professional bodies, Royal College of Surgeons, for example, who confronted with the judgment of the China Tribunal are probably different in their approach to china when decisions of certain types have to be made so yeah i think probably does have an effect
0: this particular tribunal has heard appalling statements by witnesses witnesses hmm. uh, who've who've experienced and witnessed terrible things and one of the conclusions of that last tribunal we were just talking about it, it was that it couldn't conclude that there was genocidal intent but it seems there may be questions of genocide in this tribunal i don't want to preempt the findings hmm. but Obviously, governments are obligated under the terms of the Genocide Convention to do certain things. Can you explain, you know, if there are findings from the tribunal that do conclude that genocide is happening, how should governments respond to that?
2: Well, this is a very important point. A little bit of the history of the Genocide Convention. The convention was brought in by this very famous, very important man, Raphael Lemkin, because he realised that offences or criminal acts in countries that weren't at war with other countries weren't going to be subject to any control. There was no ability to go into another country and say, I, as a citizen of the United States of America or the United Kingdom, uh, I'm going to come in and just deal with your problem, or I'm going to deal with your criminal activity in another way. And this all came about, this failure um, came about partly because of the way the Nuremberg statute into German war crimes was cast and the resolute determination of countries, Great Britain and America, uh, not to expose themselves to external investigation of internal wrongdoing. The decolonization or colonizing act of Great Britain and then the decolonizing acts, which may have been wickedly criminal, uh, a lynching of black Americans in America seems to have been a very prominent thing that the American government thought about when it was contemplating the genocide convention. For example, neither of these countries wanted the convention at all. Don't let the modern politicians try and persuade you otherwise, they never wanted it. And indeed, they didn't accede to it for 20-something years in England's case, I think nearly 30 in America's case. And indeed, the term, it was never used, it was a non-use term. And then it came to prominence in the Tribunal set up for Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia and it was put in their statutes as a possible crime and so it started to be used and then the people started to use the term. Victims wanted the term to be affixed to their particular suffering. It's a curious thing but that's the way it works. Victims want to think their suffering is the worst of all. Well perhaps it's not so surprising but we would like to think if we've been treated badly. Nothing worse could have happened to anyone. So it became a popular term for consideration. But governments still never wanted to use the term, because they never wanted to find themselves saying to another country, that country is committing genocide. Because if they did, then under Article 1 of the genocide convention, they'd have to take steps to prevent it. Since governments have never responded to that, and since governments' actions responsive to that, have never been tested in courts or even in the court of public opinion. Nobody knows precisely what they should do, but it is clear that they should do something. And Governments simply want to avoid ever having to do something when they don't know what to do, or when it might be against their interests. And our government, the British government, has managed to establish this wonderful Alice in Wonderland protocol where the government says only judges can decide whether genocide has happened. But there is no court that can decide whether genocide has happened for all sorts of reasons we need to go into now. Therefore, we can't decide that genocide has happened so that we don't have to do anything. I mean, it's it's a sort of four-part process. And into this process, bodies like ours can, depending on what we say about all these things, I have no idea, lob a fact. And if the fact's difficult to deal with, then... The citizen will see the government's having difficulty dealing with that fact. Maybe it'll even go and do something. Maybe it won't spend the next decades trying so hard to keep countries acquitted of possible wickedness, in whatever reason it was.
0: You mentioned Bosnia there. I mean, you led the prosecution of Slobodan Milosevic in the Hague. Mm. So you have you have been witness to evidence of appalling human rights abuses mm. and um, terrible atrocities mm. again not wanting to preempt the tribunal's findings have you investigated allegations of wrongdoing on the scale that you have heard in this tribunal before
1: well
2: i think possibly the answer hoped for in your question not only won't be provided but you almost get the reverse answer hey i'm not going to say anything about the qualitative similarity or dissimilarity between evidence I've heard in different cases, but it has to be remembered that at present there is no allegation of mass killing by the People's Republic of China against the Uyghurs and other Turkic minorities. The allegation is of other modes of committing genocide through stopping people having babies, separating their families, and that sort of thing that's in the vernacular, and not mass killing. And so whatever decision we make, it will be the first decision of any kind of body, apart from those who've written reports, not heard evidence and tested evidence, will be the first decision of its kind into this form of alleged genocide. And so you might draw from that that in one way, the allegations, however horrible they might be, perhaps slightly lesser than those which allege mass killing has happened in either Rwanda or Bosnia or Cambodia.
0: Do you hold out any hope that this tribunal would force governments to listen?
2: Yes, I think so. Not because necessarily of the power of us as a tribunal, although it's true to say that this tribunal at my choice is not a choice of big name lawyers and famous human rights people. This is a tribunal of Lay people from many disciplines, senior obviously, most of the many of them are professors, one's a sort of A list businessman, um, one's a former diplomat. But this is people making this decision, none of them, of course, being paid a penny, none of them really having any personal interest in the outcome. We'll all just disappear into the wallpaper when it's all done. And that what will be left is the decision itself. And that alone is not going to give us power, I and mean, it might, but the Russell Tribunal probably didn't have much effect and many of the others hasn't. That's not to say that they shouldn't be tried, not said they're not worthwhile, it's just to say, so I suppose, that the public and government's rather like the rubber stamp, you know, they like <laughs> and judges in silly clothes with great formality. But this will have a different type of authority And one of the things governments might take it seriously, bodies, arts bodies might take it seriously. And around the world, as you may know, there have been parliaments, not governments, that have announced that this is genocide. Well, a parliamentary vote is not an evidence-based analysis. One government has pronounced it's genocide without deigning to produce its reasoning. That's the United States government. And yet nothing has been done in the mouth of uh, Secretary of State Pompeo on his second to last day in office, I think, but has been acknowledged by Secretary of State Blinken shortly after taking office as accurate. And with such a body of interest as was and may still be, people are fickle, and a body of recorded parliamentary findings saying this is genocide, were it to be an expression of confidence that genocide has been committed, and this is not even the slightest indication that that might happen, I have no idea what would happen, but were that to happen, then you could easily see parliamentarians perhaps going further, and the government having to decide, well, nobody knows what Article 1 of the Genocide Convention means, because all governments like ours have dodged it for 70 years, more than 70 years. But okay, we've got to do something. And that might in itself be quite uh, helpful because if one country said, yeah, yup, game's up, we can't dodge this question anymore. We've got to deal with this extremely powerful country on the basis that it's genocidal. If that would happen, I repeat again, I have no idea what the answer is going to be really because we only just started thinking about it. But if that would happen, then another country might say, mm, yeah, I can see that. And we've got to do this. now." If those countries in the intervening period when genocide had been alleged respectively had not dodged it and said, okay, if it's genocide and it looks like maybe, then we've got to act. And if they'd done something, you would have had a sort of composition of activities that would have served a really valuable purpose because it would amount to collective pressure, even on the most mighty of countries not to do these bad things if they're being done.
0: Okay, well, Sir Geoffrey, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Coming up, I speak to Martin Bailey about his new book on Van Gogh and to Ken Tyler about the woodcuts he made with Helen Frankenthaler. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. Nadine Dorries, a politician at the far right of the Conservative Party and Brexit champion who's appeared on reality TV and voted against gay marriage when legislation was proposed in 2013, is the UK's new Culture Secretary, following the Prime Minister Boris Johnson's reshuffle on Wednesday. Oliver Dowden, who's held the post since 2019, has been appointed chairman of the party. In terms of personal involvement in culture, Dory's main role has been as a novelist. There's little evidence that she has any particular interest in the visual arts or museums. One fellow Tory MP told The Guardian newspaper that her appointment was, quote, a colossal mistake. 26 items looted by French troops in the 19th century from West Africa will go on show in a special exhibition at the Musée du Quai Branly Jacques Chirac before making their way back to Benin, their country of origin, later this year. As Gareth Harris writes, after decades of wrangling over the plundered works, the controversial objects will be exhibited in Benin, the restitution of 26 works from the royal treasures of Abome between the 26th and 31st of October, prior to leaving France after a law allowing their return was passed last year. The works were seized in November 1892 from Abome in present-day Benin and have been kept at the Musée du Quai Branly Jacques Chirac since 2003. The artist and activist Dred Scott has created White Mail for Sale, an NFT or non-fungible token that uses the uber-capitalist art form as a form of social critique. It will be auctioned off at Christie's post-war to present sale on the 1st of October in collaboration with Christine Tierney Gallery. As well as Ludell reports, the work, as the title implies, is a short video of a white man in mundane 21st-century work clothing standing on an auction block on a street corner in a predominantly black neighbourhood in Brooklyn. Scott said in a statement, quote nfts are non-fungible tokens that confer uniqueness to digital artworks the term fungible resonated differently for me due to its use by scholars of the history of slavery people are inherently non-fungible but as slavery became an integral part of developing capitalism enslavers sought to make people fungible you can read these stories and much more on our website or the app we'll be back after this The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. On the 1st of October, post-war to present, Jump starts Christie's fall 2021 auction season in New York. As the platform for fresh and established voices in post-war and contemporary art, this live auction showcases post-war mainstays like Wayne Thiebaud, Yayoi Kusama and Helen Frankenthaler in the same setting as contemporary masters such as Micheline Thomas and Yoshitomo Nara uncover highlights from notable collections as well as two highly sought-after nfts in this sale offering something for those just beginning their collecting journeys and for seasoned collectors alike learn more at christie's.com Welcome back. Now, Martin Bailey, London correspondent for The Art Newspaper and the writer of our weekly blog, Adventures with Van Gogh at theartnewspaper.com, has a new book on the Dutch artist out next week. Van Gogh's finale, Auvers and the Artist's Rise to Fame, looks at Vincent's final months, his death and his legacy. I spoke to Martin about the book. Martin, it occurred to me when I was reading the book how much... We think we know about the end of Van Gogh's life, but actually how much you've revealed in this book. is that Was that part of the inspiration for doing the book?
3: Yes. Well, I feel a bit like a detective and I, I really enjoy digging deeper. And a lot of people say well, you, there's nothing new to say about Van Gogh, surely. Um, but there really is um, if you hunt around and also if you hunt around with a fresh eye because so many researchers just follow the previous leads. So I really enjoyed writing it, and I hope the readers enjoy reading it.
0: Well, I certainly did. Um, I, I, the way you've structured it effectively is the last couple of months of his life in Auvergne, which is this northern French town, then you've got the the suicide or was it a murder? And then you've got the the period after his death. W- tell me about that structure, because it, it it addresses some of the key points of that period, doesn't it?
3: Yes. Well, it's a slightly unusual way of approaching it. But I'd done two previous books on Van Gogh in France, one on his period in Arles, Studio of the South, and another when he was at the asylum entitled Starry Night. So this really completes the trilogy, if you like. The first half of the book is about his period in Auvers, which was a village um, north of Paris, and he was there for 70 days and he painted 70 paintings. I mean, what an astonishing productive period the most productive period of his life in terms of output. So the first half of the book deals with um, his period there, the paintings and um, his friends and uh, what he did and where he walked. Uh, The middle part of the book deals with his death, Uh, which may sound a rather downbeat subject, but um, it is actually very interesting and particularly interesting now because there's a controversy over whether Van Gogh committed suicide or whether he was murdered. Well, we'll probably talk about that a bit later. Um, And then the final part of the book is about his rise to fame. And it is astonishing uh, that an artist who sold one painting during his lifetime now is possibly the most popular artist on the planet um, all over the world um, and certainly is up there in the top handful and sells for these astonishing prices. I mean, Van Gogh could never have imagined what his paintings would sell for. So the last third of the book is the astonishing story of how an artist suddenly became popular.
0: Let's talk about the Auvers period then first because obviously the period before this he'd been in the asylum... And and even though he was in the asylum, there were periods then when he was terrifically prolific too, right? But, but this is, as you say, 70 paintings in 70 days. Tell us about the kind of works that he was making and what propelled him to be so prolific in that period.
3: Well, he was doing mainly landscapes, not entirely. He did a few portraits, including some important ones. But he enjoyed discovering the landscape in Auvers. And it was then a fairly small village with hamlets around it. Uh, He was staying in an inn just opposite the town hall, very convenient. And five minutes away, he would be in the wheat fields. And it was a very different landscape from Provence, where he'd been working. I mean, the landscape of Provence, we can imagine it. You know, it was olive trees, cypresses, very dry. Um, but very dramatic and very hot in the summer. And Auvers was much more gentle and um, sort of rolling countryside and a a plateau just
0: above the village. And he loved the thatch cottages, didn't he? Exactly.
3: He described them earlier in his life, these sort of thatched cottages, as nests for humans. Um, And uh, he began by exploring uh, the landscape and exploring uh, the cottages Uh, And that really gave him a buzz. And it also must have been very exciting being out of the asylum. Imagine being behind a high wall uh, for a year and then suddenly staying in an inn where you go downstairs and have your meals uh, with the, the other villagers who come in for a drink. You know, it was a very exhilarating period to arrive there.
0: And he was, um, in, in, in Theo's terms, he was very well when he arrived in Ovère. Was that wishful thinking, do you think, or did it appear like he was well? Because it said he was cured at, at the asylum. Right?
3: Uh, I, yes, I think there was an element of wishful thinking about that. I mean, after all, he had several attacks um, when he was at the asylum, and he'd had only one a few weeks earlier, but he was desperate to leave and his brother Theo and his doctor at the asylum agreed that he could go. It was a high-risk strategy, and in the end it failed.
0: Tell us about the characters that he met there, because there's one particular person that he came across when he was there, Dr Gachet, who was a a seminal figure and, of course, produced extraordinary paintings.
3: Yes. Uh, Dr Paul Gachet um, was a friend of the Impressionists, and he was an amateur artist himself, and he was a doctor. So he was the ideal person to keep an eye on Vincent uh, when Vincent came to Auvers, and he helped him settle in. Um, But... Dr. Gachet was really an extraordinary character. Um, He had very wide interests. Um, He was a member of the Society of Eclectics, which was a group of um, people in Paris who used to meet for a a monthly meal to discuss matters relating to art and uh, science. Um, And um, he really was most bizarre if you like he invited Vincent to come for meals and they very rapidly became friends Um, that was very nice for Vincent but in the end Dr Gachet was not really a doctor looking after Vincent he was a friend and that may have contributed to the problems at the end
0: There's a curious thing, isn't there, right at the start where Gachet isn't there and Vincent sends an alarming note to Theo about how he's not to be trusted. Uh, Yes, to begin with, the first
3: meeting, I think, was slightly fraught. Um, But I think when they both realised their commitment uh, to uh, art and particularly to modern art or Impressionism, as it was then called,
0: um, they
3: then felt that um, they were almost brothers.
0: They uh, There are two portraits of Dr Gachet, one that he made for Theo and then one for Gachet himself. The w- we, the one that I know is the one in the Musée d'Orsay. Which one is that?
3: Yes, uh, th- that was the, the second one. That was a copy made for Dr Gachet and it was given by his son to the Musée d'Orsay. So it's very famous and one of the most important pictures in the museum there. The other painting, which is the original and is, in my view, a finer picture, um, is in a private collection. Um, It disappeared some years ago after fetching a record price at auction and everyone's been hunting for it to try and track it down, but it remains in a most, very most private collection.
0: (laughs) How extraordinary. I mean, it, it, it is bizarre, isn't it, when great pictures disappear into private collections and they sort of cease to become part of the public record in a certain way.
3: Yes, and you know we've no idea whether it will turn up next week or whether it will take 100 years uh, to turn up. And private collectors obviously keep things quiet for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes it's to do with tax, uh, sometimes it's family problems, sometimes they're very private people. That's what you get. If you pay that sort of money, you can do what you want with the painting.
0: Did Dr Gachet rate Vincent as, as an artist?
3: He did, yes, and he acquired quite a lot of his paintings, which in the end, of course, were extremely valuable. Dr Gachet, I think, found them surprising, but he found them interesting, and he certainly admired Van Gogh as an artist.
0: Another of the most famous paintings that he made in that period is of The Church, and it has this extraordinary radiant sky.
3: Yes, I mean, the blues in the sky are absolutely mind-blowing. Um, uh, It it is a wonderful picture. I mean, it's one of my favourites from the Auvers period. Um, One doesn't know exactly what it meant because van Gogh, although he started life as a Christian, rejected organised Christianity. Um, He may have stepped inside the church once just to see if there were any interesting paintings. Um, Otherwise, he wouldn't have done. And in fact, when he died, uh, the uh, priest of the church... Uh, refused to allow his body to be taken to the church because he'd committed suicide. Um, so one wonders exactly why he painted it. But it was one of the most important buildings, obviously, in Ovère. It's set on the hill. And um, again, we have these sort of diverging paths which appear in, in a later painting, uh, the, the wheat fields, which I'll mention in a minute. Um, uh, so I, th- I think it's one of the most important pictures he did there.
0: Now tell us about the Wheatfield paintings, because apart from anything else, one of the Wheatfield paintings has become particularly synonymous with Van Gogh's death, even though it actually wasn't the last picture he painted.
3: Yes, I mean, Van Gogh loved the wheat fields, which were on the plateau just above the village. And they were sort of vast panoramic uh, views. Um, and he was there at the right time of the year, um, because he arrived in May when the wheat was beginning to ripen. And then in July... Um, just before his death, it was actually harvested. So he saw the colours changing and he was very, very aware of colours. So he did a series of wheat field paintings. The most famous is the one with the crows, wheat field with crows, uh, which I'm sure um, everyone can imagine it, but it's this very sort of bleak uh, scene of a wheat field with three paths which appear to diverge and end in nothing. Um, crows flying past and we don't know whether they're coming towards us, the viewer, or whether they're flying away. And then this dramatic sky, which is about to sort of break with a thunderstorm. Now, traditionally, that has been thought to be Van Gogh's last painting. And that's partly what made the painting famous. But in fact, it wasn't. And recent research has shown that another painting um, entitled Tree Roots was actually uh, the last. And that's a Very strange painting. It's a a series of tree trunks or tree roots, about half a dozen or or more, um, in a sort of row. And they're all sort of slightly at different angles. Uh, And it's almost an abstract work. And we know it's the last painting because... Uh, One of the researchers at the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam found an annotated 1893 article which describes it as the last painting, annotated by a very good source. And the other bit of the story, if you like, is that the actual tree roots survive, the actual roots. And astonishingly, a year ago, um, a researcher, Wouter van der Veen, um, found an old photograph on a postcard of the roots and was able to identify the spot. So that is an astonishing survival. Um,
0: Let's talk about Van Gogh's death then. Uh, Tell us about the circumstances. Did it appear to have been coming for a while? Was Was he troubled for a number of weeks ahead of his death? It's
3: very difficult to tell. I mean, there were some problems with Theo um, and Theo's new wife, uh, Jo. There were obviously difficulties in the background, but there was no reason to think that he was actually going to do anything um, serious. Um, and it appears to be a fairly sudden decision. It was just one evening he went off at about six o'clock. He walked towards the wheat fields where he'd done so many of his paintings. And he had a revolver. And he shot himself in the stomach and uh, died two days later from his wound. Um, I don't think it had been expected. If it had been, Dr. Gachet would have um, done something. Um, So something suddenly hit him. I think basically he was in a very fragile mental condition. And he had some medical problem which caused these attacks. And he suffered an attack. and, And he decided to end his life. Do we know how he came across the gun? Well the actual I should mention that the gun itself turned up a few years ago. It was found buried in a field um and it was sold at auction um a couple of years ago. Um it's a very small gun. Um I picked it up and I put it in my hand and it was it, it was not as long as my hand. It was a very small not very powerful gun. It most likely came from the inn where he was staying. Uh because the innkeeper probably needed to keep a gun near the till um, because of customers sometimes were difficult. Um, (laughs) But he certainly didn't obtain it legitimately, so we don't know exactly how he got it. He could also have bought it because guns were relatively cheap and very simple to buy.
0: So tell us about the theories that he may not have died by suicide, that he may indeed have been murdered.
3: Yes, until 10 years ago... It was assumed that he had committed suicide, and that's what's been said right from the beginning. And a biography was published by two American authors in 2011, which had the astonishing theory that Van Gogh had been murdered or um, had been killed accidentally by someone else. Now, for my book Finale, I looked at great detail into uh, the evidence of uh, murder or manslaughter, found it very weak. And I think when you put all the evidence together, um, there is extremely strong evidence to suggest or to show or to prove uh, that it was indeed suicide. I think the most important reason is everyone around him believed that it was suicide. Dr Gachet, who treated him, who'd seen the wound, believed it was suicide. Um, Certainly the priest, who refused to allow his body to be taken to the church, thought it was suicide. Um, the innkeeper thought that he killed himself. Vincent himself said he would killed himself, and most important of all, his brother Teo believed that he'd committed suicide. And let's remember that suicide was rarely frowned upon and seen as uh, as immoral uh, at that time. And if anyone had had the slightest suspicion, they surely would have alerted the authorities.
0: What's the evidence that was put forward for murder or accident?
3: Um, They found an interview which had been published in the 1950s with an elderly man called René Secretin who said in the interview that uh, he had known Van Gogh in Auvers and that Van Gogh had stolen the gun from his rucksack. Now, I looked very, very carefully uh, through that interview and uh, René Secretin actually says that he left Auvers in the middle of July uh, and he therefore wasn't there um, when the incident took place. And René Secretan did not say that, that, that he'd been involved in the shooting. All he said was that his gun might have been taken. It was pretty flimsy evidence, I thought, but it did help to sell the biography.
0: Right. And, <laughs> absolutely. But, but then also there's this aspect that Gachet obviously was there, as you say, and and it may have been that Gachet removed the bullet, and it would have been very clear to him from his close inspection of the wound that it was suicide.
3: Indeed, no, that's a very that's very important. Um, Dr. Gachet had actually uh, wo- worked um, as a doctor during the previous war. He treated war wounds. Uh, he knew what they were like. He knew Vincent. He'd seen Vincent a few days before the the incident. He treated Vincent uh, when Vincent came back to the inn badly wounded, and he talked to Vincent for a day or two before Vincent's death. After the death, he almost certainly was involved in preparing the body. Um, He was a curious fellow. He must have looked carefully at the wound, and if he'd had any suspicions uh, that uh, it had been shot at very close range, if it had not been shot at very close range, um, he surely would have alerted everyone. And there's no reason for him to have misled us on that.
0: One of the things that you talk about in the book is this exchange with Gauguin, which I hadn't realised happened just before he died. Tell us about that.
3: Yes, well, uh, Vincent and Gauguin exchanged letters. And at one point, Vincent thought that maybe they could get together again. Of course, that was the last thing that Gauguin wanted. Um, They'd already had all the problems in Arles and the Yellow House when Vincent ended up um, mutilating his ear. And Gauguin politely had to tell Vincent that uh, he thought it wasn't a very good idea if they got back together again. Um, Gauguin then talked about um, escaping from Europe and going to some primitive country and painting there. And of course, he ended up in Tahiti. But at this point, he was thinking of the island of Madagascar in the Indian Ocean. And Vincent made some remark about possibly going out to the tropics. Uh, And again, Gauguin was horrified by this idea. So Vincent must have ended up feeling rather sort of rejected. And someone that he thought was a friend wanted to keep a distance. Uh, That may have been a factor as well.
0: I was somewhat startled when he said he he wrote in that letter, I've thought about you every day since I've been here when he was in Overe.
3: Yes, that I I find difficult to believe, but uh, (laughs) it it may have been politeness or it may have been thinking back to the problems they've been having too. So it may, may have been both positive and negative thoughts daily.
0: Indeed. Before we talk about the sort of posthumous legacy in terms of his reputation as an artist, there's this intriguing thing about Gachet and Vincent's skeleton several years after he died.
3: Yes, this was uh, most bizarre too. Um, Vincent was originally buried in the cemetery at over sur wiles in a plot which was leased for 15 years. So um, he died in 1890 and in 1905 his remains had to be moved. And Theo's widow came to Over, and it must have been very difficult for her to witness the removal of Vincent's remains. And the gravedigger dug down whilst the, they were around, around the grave. The coffin had been penetrated by some roots of a tree. They then took out the bones and uh, of, obviously there was no flesh at that point. And At one point the skull was lifted up by the doctor's son and Dr. Gachet wanted to inspect the skull uh, because he believed in phrenology, the idea that we can detect someone's personality from their uh, bone structure and their head. But the doctor's son said this was rather difficult and we better move the skull as quickly as possible. And when he wrote about it many years later, he described it as a scene out of Hamlet which indeed it was. So this was the most interesting incident which has been barely reported in the Van Gogh literature.
0: Indeed it is. So let's talk about Van Gogh after his death then. When did he start to achieve a sort of level of recognition um, professionally as well as publicly?
3: Well, it was a gradual thing. In fact, there were already references by art critics to some of his paintings in the last year or two, but um, rather small passing references. And to begin with, his paintings didn't sell at all, even after his death. But uh, within a few years, they slowly began to be accepted by avant-garde collectors. Other artists bought them. And it was gradual, but 1900, he was becoming more more well-known, particularly, in, not surprisingly, in the Netherlands and France, and then in Germany, where he became very popular just before the First World War. And then prices began to rise, museums began to buy his work. So we have the National Gallery acquiring its sunflowers in the early 1920s. Prices went up and up and up. But of course, by today's standards, they are absolutely minute. And then after the war, again, it happened. And in recent decades, his popularity has become much more global And in the 1990s. Japanese collectors bought Van Gogh's and now it's mainly collectors in China, Korea um, and Russia who are after Van Gogh's. So he's now a global superstar.
0: What do you think it is that makes him so appealing? I mean... Clearly, he's, he's an obsession yeah. for you. So tell me yeah. about, you know, on the one hand, what drives you to keep looking at this extraordinary artist? And then on the other hand, what, what do you think it is that makes him such a public feel? Because there are very many major yeah. artists who don't have a, a huge public appeal. Yeah.
3: Uh, well, there are two things for me, and I suspect they're very similar things for, for the for the public at large. I mean, the first thing is the paintings are so marvellous, uh, and particularly the ones he did in France in his last few years. Um, it's the colours of them and the imagination and they've got instant appeal. So we see the sunflowers and, you know, it's uh, it's a wonderful sort of uplifting image. But there's also more to them. Um, so anyone who's just seen a reproduction of the sunflowers ought to go and see the real thing. And there's depth to it. And you realise, you know... It's not just sunflowers. He's talking about flowers at different stages in their life. He's making other points as well. So, first of all, it's the actual art, but secondly, he's such an amazing and interesting person. Um, so he's you know ripe for biographies, and he led an astonishing life. He started off as an art dealer working in London when he was in his early twenties. He failed at that. Uh, he was working as a preacher in the Borinage. Coal mining area in Belgium. Um, He became an artist. Uh, He lived with a prostitute in The Hague. He was in a mental asylum. He mutilated his ear. And we know so much about his life because of his marvelous letters, which is a wonderful gift to a a writer, uh, but also makes it interesting for everyone because he writes about his paintings and he writes about his life. So we have his own comments on the paintings. So it's these two things. Now, me personally, I began to get interest in Van Gogh many decades ago when someone told me that he'd worked and lived in London. And I didn't know that at the time, but he'd lived in Brixton and fell in love with his landlady's daughter. So I got very interested in that uh, and did a book on that and curated an exhibition at the Barbican. Um, and I had no intention of becoming a Van Gogh specialist, but I couldn't really drop it, and uh, so... <laughs> Um, here I am many years later
0: Martin thank you very much for joining us again thank you Van Gogh's finale, Over, and the Artist's Rise to Fame, is published on the 21st of September by Francis Lincoln and priced $40 or £25. And the two previous books in the trilogy that Martin mentioned, also published by Francis Lincoln, are Starry Night, Van Gogh at the Asylum, again priced $40 and £25, and Studio of the South, Van Gogh in Provence, which is priced $25 or £18.99. And Martin's Adventures with Van Gogh blog appears on theartnewspaper.com or the app every Friday. And finally, it's time for this episode's Work of the Week. A stunning exhibition of woodcuts made by Helen Frankenthaler has just opened at the Dulwich Picture Gallery in London. It reflects her experimental approach to the medium and the remarkable efforts she went to to achieve a comparable freshness and immediacy in print to her soap stained abstract paintings. A key collaborator in that process was Kenneth Tyler, the master printmaker, and I spoke to Ken about working with Frankenthaler, and in particular on the series of six huge prints called Tales of Genji, made in 1998. Ken, you worked with Helen Frankenthaler on a number of projects. Um, Can you tell me what it was like to work with her?
4: (laughs) Uh, Both a great pleasure and difficult. Helen was um, a meticulous artist in in the way she worked. Uh, She was also meticulous in the way she gave interviews and also meticulous in the way she collaborated so that it was always crossing the T's and dotting the I's. And uh, making sure that uh, she got her way uh, and had the time that she wanted on any project. So there, there are no negatives in uh, in this collaboration. To talk about, it's only positive.
0: The medium of woodcut, it seems to me, was not an obvious choice for an artist of that generation. Or am I wrong?
4: Well, I don't know. I I can't speak for knowing. Whether all the artists of her generation worked in woodcut or not, but it certainly was uh, a medium of choice. It was economical uh, in many respects, and you could—it was portable. You know, it was something that you wasn't clumsy, didn't need big presses, and all that. Uh, until you got something that you wanted to make an impression from, then. The kind of press you used was very important. So Helen was no stranger to woodcuts. And she was no stranger to the workshop and all the techniques that we presented. So th- this was an easy transition from uh, thinking about what she wanted to do and then getting the blocks and just doing it, carving them you know, and uh, scratching them and making them muzzy and guzzing them and doing all the things she loved to do uh, <laughs> where she got a piece of wood. And then this is the question of proving the proofing was the major objective in all of Helen's projects. She needed uh, to see uh, all the nuances she could squeeze out of the image uh, on on the wood, and so this required lots of proofing. We added to that the fact that we were using handmade paper that we were making so we could adjust the colors, the thickness, the absorption qualities, and all that. So there were many more things in the equation doing these woodcuts and uh, than Helen was experienced in the past. Is
0: it, is it right that if for the Tales of Genji, this particular body of work that I wanted to talk about, she, you were doing upwards of 50 proofs of each of these, these works?
4: Right. I tried not to count. <laughs> the cash <laughs> register was growing constantly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, it, it was a trial and error uh, project. Uh, we started out knowing that we were not going to be able to make a, a standard and then abide by that standard with every impression that we made. So this gave us a liberty that we didn't have before, a freedom, uh, but it also put a new responsibility on both the artist and and the printers to be sure that what we were doing was approximately what we were trying to do, <laughs> that we were getting positive results or not negative results. Um, and in trial and error, you're you're really looking for the, uh, that moment uh, wherein serendipity takes place and you've got the right, the right moment uh, on paper uh, that you're looking for.
0: Exactly, and that serendipity that you're talking about is extraordinary because, of course, within such a, a laborious and rigorous process, she was consistently wanting an image that was utterly fresh, which, of course, is really difficult to achieve when so much is involved, right?
4: Well, that's true, except that she was very capable of uh, manipulating Liquids on paper. Uh, this was, you know, something she was extremely uh, gifted at, and so she could uh, she could watch Yasu mix the inks and uh, and know exactly how they were going to be applied, um, and she could figure out, you know, little nuances that would take place It would be the Helen Frankenthaler look, and and that was the whole question, uh, right for the beginning. We didn't want to make something that. Helen wasn't going to be pleased with. That was going to look like her signature work.
0: And she made paintings before the process, right? So in in, in effect, there were these, like a maquette in the form of a painting, which then got turned into a print.
4: That was the reason why we duplicated the wood texture on, on some
0: of them. And you mentioned Yasu there, then that's Yasu Yiki, uh, Shibata, and, and and that was again t- you talked about this collaboration, and it was very much the three of you, the studio. It was it, it, it very much is a process of toing and froing between people with different expertise, right?
4: Uh, that's correct. Yeah, I refer to it as a team. In this case, it was three people, <laughs> the team. Uh, well, four, five when well, you count the papermakers. We all collaborated together, and uh, we all knew each other. Uh, for quite some time, so this was a uh, a party. <laughs> it was Helen's party,
0: <laughs> and and again, you know that there's this phrase "born at once." These that, that Helen liked to stretch for, yeah. but it actually took three years to make the tales of Genji. Three years of sort of not totally constant, but over the the project developed over three years. Is that right?
4: Well, one version is the press release, and the other version is the reality. Uh, <laughs> the press releases it just happened. <laughs> the reality is it didn't. Uh, it took a long time, but that's okay. We we liked uh, projects that took a long time. We gained a lot of uh, uh, knowledge from that kind of process, the slow one, carefully recording everything and making sure that we, we had some dialogue to continue from session to session because, mind you, Helen was not working in the shop constantly. She would come and visit, and the visits were sometimes very brief, and that was very... Very tough for us to uh, deal with at times because we would need her in the midst of proofing and she would not be there. She'd be on the telephone or in the studio working on something else. Uh, <laughs> so it was, it was hard in the beginning uh, with the first one. And then after that, it got easier because then yeah. we started to get a routine.
0: Um, elsewhere in the show at, at Dulwich Picture Go, there's this wonderful um, working proof where she makes quite extensive notes. And one of the instructions is, but no schmaltz, please. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tell me about that. I mean, these sort of notes that she makes, which are quite eccentric, right?
4: Uh, yeah, but but that was Helen's way of uh, just recording her feelings at the moment uh, in the collaboration. And, and also to um, put it on a piece of paper that was from the, the collaboration making it even more archival and more important. And she liked these notations. She liked these archival pieces. And uh, we always thought over them. Mm-hmm. They're going in your collection or my collection. And <laughs> you know, my collection was going to the museum, but her collection was going to her vaults. She, she loved the concept of proofing. I think given her drugs, she would just love a pile of proofs. Uh, at the end of a session and uh, forget about trying to addition or, or make <laughs> them look alike
0: well the final edition is stunning so ken thank you so much for talking to me about them
4: oh well, it's my pleasure
0: Helen Frankenthaler, Radical Beauty, the first major exhibition of her woodcut prints, will be on display at the Dulwich Picture Gallery until the 18th of April 2022. To coincide with the exhibition, a special display shows Claude Monet's Water Lilies and Agapanthus from 1914 to 17, alongside Frankenthaler's painting Feather from 1979. If you're in London and you're quick, imagining landscapes, paintings by Helen Frankenthaler, 1952 to 1976, is at the Gagosian Gallery in Grosvenor Hill until tomorrow, 18th of of September. And without limits, Helen Frankenthaler, Abstraction and the Language of Print is at the Blanton Museum of Art in the University of Texas until the 20th of February next year and focuses on the Frankenthaler Foundation's gift of 10 prints and six proofs by the artist to the Blanton Museum. And that's all for this episode. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. And do subscribe to this podcast and a brush with if you haven't already done so. And please give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. We're on Twitter at Town Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Michalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Henrietta Bentall and Daniela Hathaway, and to this week's guests, Christina, Sir Geoffrey, Martin and Ken, and thank you too for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit Christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. auction, Private sales, online, art, anytime.